The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. And we're going to be starting in verse 17. All right, I love the sound of uh, flipping, flipping pages in the Bible. Here we go. As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so that they would die. And at that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in both speech and action. One day when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. So Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. peacemaker. Men, he said, you, bro- you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you ruler and judge over us, he asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. There his two sons were born. Forty years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Now go. For I am sending you back to Egypt. So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in a burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and through the wilderness for 40 years. Thank you. What a great day today. How exciting to see this family story and their dedication and all that. Uh, We find ourselves in this courtroom drama now in Acts chapter 7. Stephen's been accused of treason, speaking uh, against their culture and all that, but primarily speaking against Moses and the Torah and the temple. 
And that is a crime in that culture punishable by death. And so he stands up there accused of this in a courtroom. So don't see this as a Bible story today. See it as a courtroom drama. And what every good defense attorney does is they go on offense. He's the defense attorney, but he becomes the prosecuting attorney, and he's turning the case back on them. And he starts at the beginning just talking about this guy, Abraham. And we're all good. Abraham's the father of our country, great solidarity and all that. And then it moves to a man named Isaac and Jacob. And Isaac and Jacob, we don't know much. They don't, Stephen doesn't tell us much about them in the story itself in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. And then he moves to Moses, excuse me, then he moves to Joseph. Last week, Pastor Rob talked to us about Joseph, about being thrown in the pit and how awful that would be. Go back and listen or watch the podcast. All of our stuff is online. You can go back and review it if you had to, to miss it. Uh, Joseph, though, finds himself uh, in Egypt, second in command of Egypt, and is there to save the world. What, what he tells that the defining moment of Joseph's life is when he says, what you meant for evil, you brothers of mine who tried to kill me, God meant for good. And he said, we're going to save the world. And that's exactly what happened. So they moved the family down to Egypt because that's where the food is and they grow and they thrive there. And Stephen just gave us the Cliff's Notes version of many chapters of the Bible. Some of you know what Cliff's Notes are, right? It's like when you didn't want to read the book, you just, the night before the test, uh, did all that. Well, we're not going to just do the Cliff's Notes version. We're going to go back and look at it and kind of zoom in on some of the details. So we got the outline here in Acts chapter 7. I want you to flip back now to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1 is where the story of Moses turns up. And Stephen spends most of his time in this big... Uh, uh, a speech that he gives to the Sanhedrin, spends most of his time on Moses. And the reason for that is, is because that's who he's accused of speaking against. He says, well, you think it's all about Moses? Let me tell you about Moses. And uh, in Exodus 1, it tells us that the people, the Hebrew people, when they moved to Egypt, <laughs> grew like crazy in population. And the Egyptian people and the Egyptian culture and the political and religion, they were threatened by this. And so they said, we, we got to stop this. And it says that they brutally enslaved them, uh, that the people of Israel were made slaves forcibly and under cruel oppression. And this went on for a while trying to weaken them, but it didn't weaken them and just made them stronger. What was going on here? And so they, they institute a campaign of genocide. And the, the order went out from the Supreme Court, from Pharaoh, from the whole political authorities here, kill all the male babies. Any male baby that's born, kill them. And, and so that's where the people find themselves, and yet it says the Hebrew midwives and the nurses and all that didn't kill them. They tried to do things in, off to the side and keep people alive, and the, uh, uh, the Egyptian authorities are getting angry about this. Chapter 2 tells us, this kid was born to this nameless couple. We don't know much about them, but mom decided, I'm not going to kill him. I, I tried to keep him quiet, but those of you that have young children know how easy is it to keep a newborn baby quiet. How it's impossible. 
makes a little reed, a basket out of reeds and puts him into the river. And his older sister babysits him at the river, just watching him to keep him quiet. Probably sneaks food over there to him just to try to keep him alive as long as possible. I don't know how that's all going to work out. And then in the plot twist of all times. And again, if you see the Bible as a movie, not just as words on a page, picture this. There's the reed and the little... Uh, the, 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 the river just flowing around him, and there's Mary and his sister just kind of spying it out there. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river. We don't know if, she, if this is a spa, if they just got manicures and pedicures and massages, and now they're coming down here to do mud baths in the Nile River. We don't know what's going on here. She comes down to the river, and lo and behold, there's the basket. And she opens it up. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said, which is not going to be good news if you are Pharaoh's daughter and discovers that there's a Hebrew baby here. What's supposed to happen to that baby? You call the authorities and you kill him right here, right now, and it's just the law of the land. Nobody even cares. It's not even like, oh, it's a tragedy. It's just the way it is, taking innocent babies' lives kind of get used to it when it happens over and over again since 1973. Just get used to it. It's just the way it is. Come on, nobody cares about it. What's the big deal? It's enshrined now as a right in their culture. It's enshrined as a right in our culture. And yet she sees this baby and something in her heart just goes, no, we can't do this. So uh, Moses' sister comes over and says, well, if you want to keep this baby, I I know somebody who can take care of him for you takes Moses back home, and then eventually it tells us that this princess uh, adopts Moses as her child. And, and he's, Moses is raised in the palace. It's crazy to me, this story here. And it's not the main point today, but we've talked a lot in the last couple of years especially about how governing authorities and the rules that are passed, and sometimes they're dumb and sometimes we don't like them, but God just tells us, hey, if, as a Christian in the culture, when there's laws and rules out there, you're supposed to do your best to submit to authority and to obey those rules and authority, even when you don't like them. But there comes a time, do not miss this, when it doesn't matter what your family says, it doesn't matter what the culture says, it doesn't matter what the highest court in the land says. You say, I don't care about that. We're going to do something about this, and she does. Now, she couldn't save every Hebrew baby, but she could save one. She saved one who was going to, yeah, it's crazy, dramatic story here. There's a great, crazy plot twist right at the beginning. And so Moses is raised there in the palace, but everybody knows he's Hebrew, that he's not Egyptian. It would stand out for all kinds of reasons. Look now at chapter 2, verse 11. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he's a full-grown man now, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Stephen tells this story when he makes his uh, defense speech in the Sanhedrin. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating each other up? You're your friend, Moses said to the one who started the fight. The man replied, who made you boss? Who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And then Moses was afraid, thinking, uh-oh, everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard 
what had happened. He tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. In your own Bibles, and you have a mobile device, put a note there. All Midian is a euphemism for the word wilderness. Just desolate. There's nothing out there. No civilization of, of any kind. And he goes out to the wilderness, and he's out there for a while. It tells us in verse 23, years passed. We know from other places in the Bible, what Stephen tells us, that 40 years go by. You ever had to wait for something for 40 minutes? Some of you have waited 40 days. 40 years go by, and Moses is just out in the wilderness. I want to encourage you to come back next week as we talk about what it means if you feel like you're stuck in the wilderness. Not in a pit in persecution, just stuck in the, huh. But look what happens now in chapter 3. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. That's amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. So he's going to go over closer and check it out. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replied, which think about it. You're out wine country today. You're out taking a hike. You're on a bike thing. You're out there somewhere out in the parking lot. You see something on fire burning up, but it's not burning up. You go, well, that's kind of weird. And as you go and take a look, it says, hey, Faith. Hey, Ed. Hey, Mike, what are you going to say? Here, here, here I am. Yeah, you're going to think, what, what's going on here? Nope. Um, God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the Lord, God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. Some of you need to hear that today. Because when it's been a long time of suffering for you and for Israel, you know how many years it's been? 430 years. When you go in through suffering and stuff like that and nothing's happening, you're going to have the same thing going, where is God? What's happening? You're going, no, I'm aware. I, I, I get what's going on here. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile land, fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I grew up going to church, and they always talk about the land flowing with milk and honey. I go, who'd want to live in a land flowing with milk and honey? That's weird. It's a euphemism. Milk is the idea of there's going to be massive amounts of livestock and cattle that will give you milk. And the honey is the idea of agricultural stuff. So much agriculture is going on, lots of bees around there and honey and all that kind of stuff. So that's what's going on here. He said, it's going to be a land where, man, you are going to be loaded, is what he's telling them. The land where the Canaanites, Hittites, and a bunch of other ites live. Look, verse 9. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now, go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses, which is exactly what you'd expect to hear. God tells you, been out here in 40 years, go back to the world superpower, and you're going to 
tell them to let all their free labor go. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I'll be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God at this very mountain. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm thinking, that's not good enough, God. You say you're with me, that's great. And you're saying that people will know that, I'm, that you're with me after it's already happened. I, I need something else. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, <clears throat> the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what's his name? What should I tell them? Which would be a standard thing you would expect to hear from people who've been in the, in the Egyptian culture now that has hundreds of different gods with various names. They want to know, so which God is it that appeared to you? This idea of one transcendent God who is the true God over all the false gods would be, they wouldn't get that, they wouldn't understand that. I, in my Bible, verse 14, I have it bracketed with lines around it, things highlighted and underlined. It says this, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then he goes on and tells him, hey, go back and tell them what, what I've told you, that I'm to go talk to the Egyptians. He said, you know, I'm going to do amazing things for you. You're going to see what's going to happen here. It's going to be powerful and amazing. He said, I know the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, will not let you go unless there's some mighty, amazing dramatic signs. Some of you have seen the movies, the old school Charlton Heston one, the one they made about 10 years ago again that was kind of like, yeah, nice try, and then all the cartoons, all the cartoons that are out there. You've seen the stories of the plagues. He's kind of telling them, this is all going to happen. It's going to be powerful and amazing. But look at chapter 4, verse 1. Moses protested again. <laughs> um, what if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? And you see God getting like a little bit like an exasperated parent going, what do you got in your hand, pal? It's a shepherd's staff. He says, throw it down on the ground. Throw it down on the ground, turns into a snake. And then pick it up by the tail, pick, becomes a snap again. He goes, just do that. That'll impress them. Like, okay. He says, put your hand inside your, your cloak. And then it comes out and it's all leprous. He goes, oh, let's go. He put it back inside again. It's all clean again. Do these dramatic signs and they're going to know that I'm with you. You think Moses is going, but I'm, I'm not enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not, well, look what he else he says. He's not enough. Look at verse, verse 10. Moses pleaded with the Lord. Oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now, even though you have to me tongued. I can't talk. <laughs> I'm supposed to go and appear before the court of Pharaoh. How in the world have you put me in this? Again, I'm not eloquent enough, smart enough, gifted enough. I'm not, I'm not powerful enough. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not enough. And in verse 13, Moses again pleaded, Lord, please Send someone else. Ever been there in your life? God's asked you to step out into faith and trust him with something. And you came up with all the reasons in the world. He gives you all the, he answers every excuse, every reason. And finally you go, God, you got the wrong guy. I'm out. That's where Moses finds himself in this. And I feel like for a moment here, take, take a moment in this story. Um. We're going to come up against situations all the time where we're going to feel like, 
I can't do this. I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not enough. There's, there's no way, God, that I can do this. And our culture is going to tell you to speak into yourself. And even some of our Christianized culture will say, no, you need to hear the voice of God saying, yes, you are. And there's all kinds of stuff out there. Those of you that are my age-ish, remember back in the day, a lady named Helen Reddy? I am strong. I am tough. I am invincible. I am, I am woman. Yeah. So you go on. That was a weird song. Even for Helen Reddy to say that. I was like, I am woman? Oh, there you go. Uh, and then uh, the more modern day. Ted Lasso, a show that's got questionable stuff in it, but I was watching an episode the other day, and we have Ted Lasso theology that says this, impossible is just, I'm possible. You can do it. Come on. And then the song, Carrie Underwood, Katy Perry, you are strong, you are tough, you're invincible, I am a lion, you're going to hear me. See, that was so good. That's what's out there. And guys, there's a lot of that that's powerful and beautiful. Do that kind of stuff. When you need a boost, when you're going to go out and play a football game, when you're going to go out there and have to make a big presentation, a sales thing, when, when you've got challenging things, like when you need a boost, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But I'm telling you, you're going to come up against situations where you're going to go, God, you got the wrong guy. You got the wrong girl. I, and, and you're going to, want God, you're going to expect God based on what's out there in the pop culture and even in, in a lot of Christianized culture, God to say, come on, yeah, no, come on, pal. Yes, you are. Just let's go. Let's go. And God's never going to tell you, yes, you are. You know what he's going to tell you? Say my name. God, I'm, I'm not strong enough, but I am. God, I'm, 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 I'm not attractive enough in shape enough, but I am. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a good enough principal, but I am. I'm not a good enough truck driver, but I am. I'm not a good enough husband, but I am. I'm not a good enough Christian. God goes, but you don't have to, but because I am. Guys, the number of times in the last two years, just as, as honest as I can be right now, monthly, I sat out here in the blue chairs before I got up and go, what am I doing here? I am not a good enough pastor for this. I just, I... And I faked a lot of people out, and sometimes, you know, fake it till you make it. I'm telling you, the moments where I thought, I'm just not enough, I'm just done, and you need to hear God look you in the eye today and say, it doesn't matter, you don't have to be, because I am. That's what you got to get. It's just who God is, not who you are. And the good news, see, here's what will happen. You will wear yourself out. Um, your children are all being told that they're what? Cupcakes, Cheerios, Fruit Loops, unicorns, amazing stuff. You're all being told you're fantastic, you're beautiful. Self-esteem is the, is the dramatic lie of our culture, that you're fantastic, you're beautiful, you're amazing. No, you're not, but you don't have to be. You don't have to be because he is, and that's what God says. Come encounter me someplace. Come encounter me at a... Some of you today need to have a burning bush experience with God for God just to say, shh, I am. And because I am, you don't have to be. Now, there's more we could talk about about that. That could be the whole message, but that's just the start. We're just getting started. So Moses has been from the river to the palace 
palace out to the wilderness. Now he's going from the wilderness back to the palace, back to the showdown at the palace. And we're not going to read all the verses. He, sh- he shows back up in Egypt and says, let my people go. You saw Charlton Heston do that, right? In the court of Pharaoh. Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way. They do all the special effects with the staff and this, the leper, leprosy and all that kind of stuff. And Pharaoh says, you know what? These people are going to think, start getting too full of themselves. So here we're going to do. We're going to make the requirement that they're required to bring out. Their quota of bricks they have to produce every day the same. We're taking away their supplies. they got to get their own supplies. And it's awful. And, uh, and then these, all these plagues come down on Egypt. And again, when God does these plagues, you can read them yourself in Exodus 7 through 14. Growing up, going to church, um, and, growing, and even for a lot of my even adult Christian life, I didn't understand. I thought, well, all God's doing here is just trying to show Egypt, do some magic tricks, some special effects to go boom, boom, just random stuff. Understand what's going on here. Egypt thinks they are the I am of the universe. Pharaoh, you know, again, in their culture, their theology, their political philosophy, Pharaoh is the I am God over it all. And because he, said, because he thinks that about himself, you know, I'm not letting those people go. And so what God does is one by one, he decimates, he undercuts all the Egyptian deities. He says, you, the I am God, the river Nile turning to blood, number one, Boom, cut the legs out of the Nile God. The, the frog gods and goddesses, boom, cut those out. The locust gods and goddesses, cut. He goes one by one and just takes out their culture and says, you are not God, I am. It's a beautiful, fantastic story. When Pharaoh wants relief and the people are crying out and all the bloggers and everybody's out there going, impeach Pharaoh and let's recall Pharaoh. He, oh, we've got to let, okay, we'll let you go. We'll let the people go to kind of just turn the plagues down and then he always reverts back because he has the big army and all that and changes his mind again. And finally, we get to a point where God looks at him and says what some of you parents have said to your children from time to time, I have had it. Now, you and mom and dad say that, your parents, your kids go, oh, uh-oh, when God says I've had it, he tells them, hey, what's coming here for you, Egypt is then in a day or so, the angel of death is coming through. I'm going to slaughter every firstborn male child of every household. And so we hear that go, dang, God, isn't that overreaction? God, go, no, no. I have done the staff and the snake thing thing. I've done the leprosy thing in the hand. That didn't get your attention. So one by one, I started small with the river turning to blood and fraud. One by one to get your attention, get you to bow and submit and obey me. And God's going to look at you today and say, I will do whatever it takes And if it means taking drastic measures to get my agenda and get my glory seen, then I'm going to do whatever it takes, whether you like it or not. And you don't have to do this, he says. But the the firstborn child of every Egyptian Hebrew household is dying tomorrow night. The angel of death is coming through. And the beautiful part of this story, for those of you that are Jewish, you know all about this. God says, but none of you have to experience that. All you have to do is go get a one-year-old male lamb without blemish or defect. And you need to slaughter that lamb. Now, we hear that called the slaughter of lambs. Look, that's because we get all of our meat and packages at a counter at Stater Brothers. Back then, you wanted meat to eat. Everybody would have had no problem. This happened all the time. Take the innocent, spotless lamb without blemish or defect, slit its throat, take, gather the blood, and then get some branches and take that blood and go like this. And over the door frames of your house... 
put that blood in. Look at chapter 12, verse 23. Chapter 12, verse 23 says, For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians, but when he sees the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his death angel to enter your house and strike you down. And this finds, this is not just about Passover. This is ultimately what Jesus comes to do. He says, look, the wrath and the judgment of God is coming over your life, over the home that is your life, and there's nothing you can do about it on your own. You can't be religious enough. You can't be good enough. You can't make enough money. You can't donate enough money to the Cross Point Church. You can't do anything to make this right. What you need is the blood of an innocent lamb over your life. This is what Jesus does when he dies on the cross. Don't, don't miss this, folks. Sometimes in our culture of people that people admire Jesus, think Jesus is cool, hip, fun, exciting, all that kind of stuff, people think, well, the teachings of Jesus and the example of Jesus, they think that's what it means to follow Jesus. That is not what it means. Jesus says, ultimately what it's about is what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago. And it was my blood spilled on a cross that secures you making right with God, not just following my teachings and following my example. Part of it is because, yeah, nice try. You won't be able to, apart from miraculous intervention of God in your life. Put the blood of an innocent lamb over your life. You're not a Christian yet today. You never, if you're newer to church and Christianity, you wonder what it's all about, and you still have questions about that, but want to know what's that all about, God's Spirit speaking to you, on the connection card they talked to you about a few minutes ago. Jot me a note about that. I'll call you. We'll sit down and have coffee, talk on the phone, face-to-face, video, whatever, and figure out what it means for you to come to terms with your sin, the wrath and judgment of God against you, and how it can pass over your life and you become right with God. So Passover happens. The Egyptians now say, get them out, send them away. Look at chapter 12, verse 36. The Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites, and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. Usually an army would come in to a superpower like Egypt. It would take a big, massive army to come in and kill everybody. Not to kill anybody. They said, what will, it take for, what will it take to get you to leave? Well, we'd like your flocks and your herds and all of your clothes and the gold and silver in your 401k. We want it all. And they just, whatever it takes to get you to go, they took it all. That night, the people of Israel left Ramesses and started for Succoth. There were about 600,000 men, plus all the women and children. Roughly a million to a million and a half people leave Egypt that night. And when you see that in the story, you're thinking, awesome, this is the highlight. This is where the story goes to the top. Go, this is the free at last, free at last. We are going to the promised land. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. But you'll see in your program today, the free at last has one exclamation mark and then lots of question marks. Because all kinds of stuff happens here. And remember, why Stephen is making this speech to the Jewish council, to the Sanhedrin, is not just to tell us Jewish history and get us all inspired at a church service. He's telling us to go, hey, over and over and over again, we ignore and reject God's message and God's messengers. It tells us, I told you about it, when Moses first shows up uh, and tells Pharaoh, let my people go, in Exodus 5, he says, hey, we're going to increase uh, we're going to keep the quota the same, but we're not providing any materials. Chapter 5, look what happens when how people respond to Moses. 
Chapter 5, verse 21, the foreman said to them, to Moses and Aaron, that's uh, Moses' brother, May the Lord judge and punish you for making us stink before Pharaoh and his officials. You put a sword into their hands and an excuse to kill us. They, Moses got, freedom is here for us. Let's go. We don't want this. Away with you. In chapter 12, you know, they've, been, they've seen all these miraculous play, uh, plagues where God rains down stuff, darkness and light, and crazy. Read the story for yourself. But in, in chapter 14, uh, they're free at last. They think they're on the way to the promised land. Chapter 14, look at verse 5. When the word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all those Israelite slaves get away, they asked. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots. That'd be like today, modern day language, tanks. Along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt. So 600 of elite tanks and too many to count of just normal tanks and chariots. Each with its commander, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So he chased after the people of Israel who had left with fists raised in defiance. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near some place. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw. Ever been there? God's called you out to something and all of a sudden you look around what's going on around you going, uh, what's happening here? They saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why'd you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough grace for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better, and here's the t-shirt, the hashtag, better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. And you can understand why they would think this. The armies, there's the Red Sea in front of them, superpower army coming behind you. And spoiler alert, those of you that saw the movie or read the book, the book's better than the movie, by the way, but just so you know, uh, God says parts the, the waters of the Red Sea, the a million plus people all walk through there on dry land. Pharaoh shows up with his army and his chariots. He goes, we got to go in after him. It says that God caused confusion there, caused the wheels to come off their chariots. There's confusion there and got them all stuck in the middle and then said, drop the water and drowned out the world's superpower army in a moment there. The people of Israel have seen this happen. They've seen the plagues, 10 of them. They've seen God go and deliver them miraculously. And it's not 30 days after they leave. I'm not going to read all these verses there. They're on your note sheet in chapter 15, 16, and 17. You know what they say? Why'd you bring us out here to die, Moses? There's no food out here. There's no water out here. We don't like this water. And we want, we're tired of this manna stuff. We want some meat. Over and over and over again, they do this, and God keeps providing for them, and God, they finally get to the promised land. Numbers 13 and 14 tells us they get there, and Moses says, okay, it's here. We are here. We are here for freedom, the land that God promised us. Send out people to go spy out the land and check it all out, to scatter it out, and the people decide, nope, we're not going to do it. Once again, Moses says, and God says, I've got freedom for you, and we ignore and reject God's message and God's messengers, and you know Why? 
Not so much, I think, because we're bad and evil. It's because we're scared. Over and over again, well, write this down, then let me pack this for you. When we get scared, we get stupid and sinful. I had a chance to go to Israel a few years ago, and they took us through the wilderness. We were in there in a bus for about an hour. And you know what you can see out in the wilderness that the people of Israel would have been in? Gray rocks, as far as you can see. No, nothing like, and we live in the wilderness, the desert here, but we got shrubbery and greenery and stuff like that. There's nothing there. So you can understand why they freaked out a little bit, going, what's going on? They get to the, to the promised land, and they see these massive walled cities with big people that are like Thor and the Marvel superhero kind of people going, oh, we have no chance against that. You get why they'd be scared, and you're going to be in situations like that in your life where you're going to think God's way doesn't work. God, I know I trusted you so far, but on this one, I can't trust you. It just doesn't work. It's too difficult. If we do this God's way, we're going to suffer. If we do this God's way, we're, we're not going to be fulfilled. And so, and so we think, I'm a single mom. You don't understand what this is like. I've got, got to make some compromises here with, with, with finances, with sexuality, with forgiveness and conflict resolution, all that kind of stuff. You're going to come up against situations where you're going to think, we can't do this. It's terrifying. It's terrifying because I tripped and fell again. And so accountability with my small group, when I got to go talk about the fact what I stumbled into again, I just can't do that. When that addiction, when that compulsion overwhelms you, like the Egyptian army thinking, God, I can't do this your way. You're going to think, I can't, can't do this. I want you to see what happens here. This is stuff to take home with you today. Chapter 14. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. And then look at verse 13. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Whenever God tells us not to be afraid, he's not saying don't feel emotions of fear. What he's telling us is don't let fear determine your actions. Stay calm, calm down. And look what he says here. Just stand still and watch. So the first thing, maybe something to write down there if you want, is when you're up against stuff and you're scared and whatever, just Watch what God will do. Watch what God will do. Now, here's the crazy part about this. Over the years, having worked with people, and this is not just next-gen millennials. This is Gen Xers, boomers, busters. All of y'all do this. I do this kind of nonsense. Just stand still and watch. We think that means, oh, so in my marriage, just I don't want to go to counseling. I'm just going to stand still and see what God does. With my finances, I don't have a budget. I'm not going to give. I'm not going to church. I'm just going to be passive and chill here. That's not what, stand still does not mean standing around. I'll I'll prove it to you because the next verse, look what Moses says. Look what happens here. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. He got, I got things to do here. But so standing still doesn't mean we sit around and just do nothing. He says, you've got things you're going to do here, but you're not sitting there going, oh, it's all about me and freaking out and panicking and all that. Just watch what God will do. But I also want to tell you today, it's super important for us to not just watch what God will do. Number two, remember 
what God has done. What God has done. My, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible comes from the book of Philippians. Turn there if you can. Navigate there on your mobile device. It's all the way towards the back of your Bible. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. Paul writes this from prison, which makes it crazy ironic that he's talking about what he talks about here, and he's in prison. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. When you're freaked out about that, go to God, talk to God about this. Or you could do, I've actually uh, found it, uh, they found some hidden manuscripts, ancient hidden manuscripts of the revised heresy version of this. Here it is. It parallels our Bible. Listen to it. Don't pray about anything. Worry about everything. Tell everyone, post to everyone what you need and freak out about it all and then forget what God has ever done for you. Then you'll experience cultural stress and anxiety which exceeds anything you can understand. This stress will unravel your hearts and minds and lives as you live by cultural norms and standards. He said, look, there's a different way to do it. There's a different way to do this. Now, over the years, I've heard pastors and leaders and books, I've got up here and said this, hey, when you're dealing with stress and anxiety, being overwhelmed by all that, what am I going to do here? He says, don't worry about it, pray about it. That's not what, God, what Paul says here. You know that, right? Because we think, don't worry, pray about it. I know right now, I've listened to some of you pray. Your prayers make you more anxious. Because you start brainstorming with God about how God's going to answer the prayer. What about this? And what about this? And God, I just need so much. God says, tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Gratitude. Now, here's the deal with gratitude. God does... God is 1,000% healthy self-esteem. He doesn't need your gratitude. He's not like your mom or your dad or your whatever going, I just need some gratitude. I'm just so, and I just need somebody to fulfill me and appreciate me and all that in order so I need to be blessing again. God doesn't need any of that. We need gratitude because we need the practice of gratitude to remind ourselves what God has done. Gratitude is the fuel for, for faith. Gratitude reminds us what God has done for us. And so we've talked about this over the years. Uh, this idea of a gratitude challenge. I'm going to take you through mine here in just a second. There's another book, I, uh, somebody in our smoker was talking about it this week. It's called 1,000 Gifts by Anne Voskamp, V-O-S-K-A-M-P. It's the idea of living in the moment and finding things to be grateful for all the time. It's a simple book. It's a, it's, you should get it and read it. Um, we've done something over here over the years. I think it was three or four years ago was the first time we did it called the Gratitude Challenge. Mine's going to come up on the screen. It also looks like this. It's a piece of paper. How old are you? Don't tell me, just in your own head. And then you get a piece of paper out and just write down that many things you're grateful for. Not one for every year you've been alive, but that many things. So if you're 27, 27 things going here. 37, four, whatever, uh, how, however old you are, and I've got all kinds of things on mine. For grateful the leadership team here in Crosspoint, grateful for my wife Denise and my kids Stephen and Brittany, and for Faith who's sitting right there uh, today. Um, gr grateful for all kinds of stuff, things, that, key moments that happened in my life when we got our own facility, a conference I went to, Chili Dogs and uh, Mountain Dew. <laughs> hey, shut up! It's my list. Make your own gratitude challenge. 
I even have on here um, the stuff I learned during COVID. Not grateful for COVID, but God, I'm telling you right now, God did some things in my life to me and through me in COVID that never would have happened. Had that. Now, I'm not signing up to go through that again anytime soon at all. I'm just telling you some stuff happened to me that I'm grateful for that God did in the midst of all the nastiness of, of all of that. So in, on your, in your small groups this week, one of the questions that's there, I think whether you're in a group or not, intersect in the inside of your program there. The last question there says, like the question four or five says, do the gratitude challenge and bring it with you and talk about it. Guys, I keep this posted above my desk right there. You know why? Because of you. Because I can be real honest right here, sometimes I'm not grateful for you. Sometimes when some of the nonsense and shenanigans and silly, ridiculous things some of you do, I just go, and I got to remind myself, remember what God's done. But I also want you to see this here. Not just remember what God has done, remember who God is. Remember Moses at the burning bush? God comes to him and says, before he tells him all the things he's going to do for him, what's God's name? I am. And sometimes we can get so preoccupied with, God, I need this, and I need this, and my marriage, and my finances, and my health, and my fitness, and blah, 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 my infertility, whatever. We go, whoa, 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 all these things, challenging things that are going on. God goes, shh, do you know who I am? Have you encountered the I am God, the God who just is, the God who is I am in the past, I am in the present, and I am in the future. The God who says it doesn't matter, you don't have to be, because I am the one and only true God. One of the things you're going to do this week on the Intersect follow-up questions is to Google the names of God and meditate those and reflect on those and let it speak into your soul. And that's really, guys, what worship is. When we sing songs here today, what we are saying is, God, whatever you've done, I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for who you are, independent of anything you've ever done for me. The band's going to come up right now. And we're going to sing, sing some songs together about the I am God. We're going to give you a chance to come to tables of communion in the four corners of the room. For those of you that are newer here, it's, it's the elements of that we're at the first Passover, bread and juice that's there. And Jesus, 2,000 years ago, said, now these elements don't stand for the Passover, the first Passover of God's wrath and judgment passing over the land of Egypt. It now stands for the ultimate Passover. The Passover of the judgment has passed over you because of what I did on the cross. And so we remember and celebrate that uh, today. I don't know what God's spoken into your heart and soul today. Some of you may be at challenging times right now where you feel like, man, I'm up against the Red Sea. I got an army behind me. I got stuff going on. I'm freaking out. Our prayer team's at the back. Uh, right back there in that back corner. If you need prayer for anything, people will be getting up, moving around to come and get the elements of communion and all that kind of stuff. So go back there. Go back there and let them pray for you. Don't handle this kind of stuff on your own. And then let God just speak into your soul today as we sing. I don't know, I'm just moving in my spirit right now to tell you this. Maybe here for the next 10, 12, 15 minutes, 
We don't come to God with one request. One request. Maybe the simple request is, God, I need an encounter of you at the burning bush. The God who just speaks into my life, I am. And so Jesus today, God, we want to know you. And we don't want to just know you because you do stuff for us. So whatever that is, God, right here, right now, would you quiet our hearts and souls so we would encounter I am. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.